0: Hello everyone, welcome to episode six of Ask Concussion Dog. Uh, today we have three questions. The first one is in regards to acupuncture and how it can be helpful for the treatment of patients, when to apply it, how it works, that type of stuff. Uh, the second question is how should the SCAT-5, which is the sport concussion assessment tool, be used in my practice? And then we're going to finish up with a study of the month. It's a very interesting study coming out of the University of Toronto talking about exercise, um, and concussion in the acute phase. We've always done exercise mostly in the chronic phase, and uh, we're starting to see this earlier and earlier, so this is a really, really cool study. And uh, first off, actually we, uh, this, this month is National Physiotherapy Month in Canada. Uh, we work with a lot of physiotherapists within our network. And if you look at um, what's, what's the website, just just the Canadian Physiotherapy Association website, they have uh, a ton of resources right now on concussion specifically and the role of uh, PT uh, physical therapy in concussion. Uh, great to see. We're obviously very supportive of that role. So make sure you check it out, make sure you support it, make sure you share to get the word out that uh, concussions can be rehabbed and that PT and other allied health plays a large role in that. And um, just just kind of a housekeeping measure, we get a lot of questions from individuals who are uh, obviously looking for answers because they're, they're going on their own history. They may have a concussion and they're looking for kind of answers. We don't want to answer anybody's specific kind of questions about their particular case. Uh, If you are having issues, make sure you find a trained concussion practitioner that can kind of guide you through the right steps. We won't be able to provide any guidance because ultimately we would have to assess you in order to be able to make a good determination as to what to do uh, next. So I know that you want your questions answered, but um, unfortunately we won't be able to do that. Um, Okay, so in just getting to the the questions, uh, the first one is about acupuncture. And um, some of you have seen a video that I've done just treating a patient with acupuncture. This is something that I use quite frequently uh, with my patients, particularly when um, the issue is cervical spine related. I know some other practitioners will use it as a tool to help with uh, autonomic nervous system uh, dysregulation, which is an important part of concussion. I'm not an acupuncturist, and so I don't necessarily believe that I have you know, enough of the qualifications to use it in that measure, but uh, I do work with some people that will implement acupuncture in that way. Um, when you are you have a concussion, your autonomic nervous system gets all out of whack, and people have varying degrees of sympathetic overload and parasympathetic, parasympathetic overload, uh, and some practitioners will utilize acupuncture in a, in a way to create... Um, um, uh, a change in that in that nervous system response, and they'll use that using what's called systemic points. Uh, and there're specific points kind of all around the body. And by doing those specific points, um, the the goal at least is to uh, lower the sympathetic drive, potentially increase sympathetic, and that might help. I personally, uh, don't necessarily feel qualified to be administering acupuncture in that way uh, but I will use it as more of an adjunct to my manual therapies just personally um, if we've ruled that the concussion symptoms are coming from the cervical spine or the neck Um, and we do this through a variety of ways first you have to kind of rule out the physiologic stuff then you have to kind of rule out some of the inflammatory issues and the visual and vestibular and then uh, you may then find okay some of the neck issues are recreating these symptoms I'll use acupuncture as a tool to help with my treatment protocols and so specifically if I have a muscle that's not responding well to my you know active release therapies my soft tissue work and I can't get it to go uh, or to just release in any way, generally I'll, I'll try a couple acupuncture needles into that tissue. Uh, and what you'll get, if you hit, a, if you, if you hit the right spot, um, you'll feel the muscle kind of twitch under the needle and then it will relax. And so I tend to just get a better response with uh, acupuncture needles sometimes, especially in those muscles that are having a hard time releasing, specifically the suboccipitals. Uh, uh, inferior oblique, especially for visual issues. Uh, there's been a couple studies looking at convergence insufficiency in people with convergence issues because those, those muscles uh, in the inferior oblique help with visual tracking, that releasing some of those issues can help with some of the convergence dysfunction. Um, there was also a recent study that actually found that um, there was four or five points in the back of the head and neck Uh, found that people's cognitive uh, abilities improved over standard kind of cognitive behavioral therapy. And um, so I think there's a lot more to acupuncture, I think there's a lot more that needs to get flushed out. Typically I use it through the SCMs, I find that the uh, sternocleidomastoid muscles are heavily involved in in dizziness as well as kind of just those chronic postural strains that people have where it jams up the back of the neck and creates these kind of cervicogenic headaches Typically the headaches are behind the eyes, in the forehead, and people will go through several rounds of medication, and when they come in to see us, I'll just push on their suboccipitals and I'll recreate that um, that, that sensation that tells me there's an issue there. And so acupuncture, the way I use it, is more of an adjunct uh, to therapy. I also like to use a little bit of STEM. Uh, you can you know do STEM in varying ways. I'll usually just use kind of a little corner plus and do it very quickly. But, what I find, especially in a muscle like the sternocleidomastoid, it's very difficult to treat. Uh, it's over a lot of vasculature. Uh, it's over the neurovascular bundle. Uh, it's uncomfortable for people when you're doing soft tissue and really kind of digging in on it. So, uh, for those ones, I'll, I'll generally put a needle kind of mid belly in the SCM and then just stim it a bunch of times, and you'll see the patient's head twitching and moving, and then. Um, and then just pull the needle out maybe after 30 seconds to a minute and then your soft tissue it's just like butter and uh, you get way more work done and the patients are uh, just blown away at the drastic change that they'll feel because that dizziness sensation tends to go away uh, with that. there's obviously some other stuff that goes into that but uh, I think that's a big discussion Uh, question number two uh, how should the SCAT-5 be used in my practice so for those that don't know the SCAT-5 is the Uh, Sport concussion assessment tool and it's iteration number five that was developed in the fifth international consensus statement uh, that just happened in Berlin. Well, I guess it's been over a year now, about a year since that was published. And um, so the SCAT-5 is just a series of of tests and tools that are uh, utilized. It's basically a sideline test and I think this is where a lot of people kind of go wrong when they're using the SCAT-5 is that they'll try to use it as a baseline. Although it is good to have you know a baseline on the SCAT-5 because if you're doing any sideline management uh, having that baseline measure can be can be helpful but unfortunately the other tests that are involved in the SCAT-5 so there's there's a balance component but it's very basic there's a, a little bit of memory and a little bit of concentration uh, some basic orientation questions like what's the day, what month is it, what year is it, where are we, uh, what venue are we at, that type of stuff is included in the SCAT and um, some recent studies have kind of called that into question. In Particularly, there was one just done at York University, and this was uh, about three weeks ago or so maybe that this came out. And what they found was that the SCAT tool, even in the initial phases, wasn't really good at distinguishing between um, concussed and non-concussed kind of um, people from baseline so there's very minor changes in the scat from from people's baseline the biggest thing or the best thing about the scat that you can have is that symptom score so the symptom score is obviously the most uh, reliable because you get a huge change because at baseline you have people that are you know maybe having a symptom severity score of two, three, four, you know maybe beyond headache that type of thing when you When you then get into post-injury, you see scores in the 30s, 40s, 50s. So obviously, there's a huge jump from baseline to post-injury on that. So that obviously gives us the best indication that there's been an injury. The other tests, there is change. They did find significant uh, differences between baseline and post-injury for those measures. However, the change was very minimal. So if you don't have a baseline and you're trying to rely on normative data on the SCAT, it's not going to help you much you need to know kind of what that person's baseline was. And even if you do have a baseline, you're looking for like a change at one point, right? So you're looking for like, a, even a one point difference would be considered kind of significant on the SCAT because we don't know what the reliable change in the C actually is. Now when you're using this tool, generally we like to do baselines not for our, our diagnosis because most of the time it's unnecessary. What we do like to use it for is our return to play. So after somebody's asymptomatic, they've gone through all the steps, this allows us now to test somebody at the back end and say, okay, you know, every, you know, your reaction time is still slow, your vision is still off, that type of stuff. So what you need when you're doing that type of baseline testing, which is how it should be used, you really need tools that are stable and have longevity, meaning that they need to show deficits two, three, four weeks after the injury. The SCAT tool, unfortunately, after only three days after injury, it normalizes, meaning that it, there's no difference from baseline by day three. So even though you get this small little difference at day one, maybe, at day three, you have no difference. So if you're using a SCAT as your baseline, uh, you're severely you know, mistaken in terms of using it to make a return to play decision, and that's not what it's for. It might help you in the initial stages. However, uh, if you're using it for return to play, um, you should abandon that practice uh, and make sure you find better tools uh, to put in your toolbox to be able to do that uh, more efficiently. Next question, or sorry, this one is about the study. So um, <laughs> exercise. So exercise has been a huge kind of topic emerging in the concussion field ever since about 2010. Um, John Letty and Barry Willer uh, and um, uh, Dr. Baker, I can't remember his first name right now, but those individuals at the University of Buffalo uh, started studying exercise as a therapy for post-concussion syndrome because what they found is that rest obviously wasn't working for people. You have a patient that's been resting, resting, resting. just kept putting them on more rest and more rest and more rest. And what... um, What these guys looked at was what can we do to? What'd you do? (laughs) You stop it. (laughs) Turn it back around. (laughs) All right, okay. Um, So what those guys wanted to look at is um, is maybe exercise might be beneficial for patients uh, with post concussion syndrome because breast wasn't working. So they've done a whole bunch of studies on this, they found that people with post-concussion syndrome actually have reduced blood flow uh, in the brain and that exercise can reverse those deficits and improve blood flow if it's done in the right way. The initial studies that came out were using this beyond a month after injury. So patients are injured, they're still symptomatic at a month, let's start putting on the treadmill and seeing what's up. Then we started looking at it about three weeks. Well, guess what? The benefits of three weeks are even better. Now we're down to a period of time that, and we've implemented it on at complete concussion management at a two-week time in interval. So if you're symptomatic and you come in and we're seeing you, and at day 14, if you're still symptomatic, we're putting you on the treadmill whether you like it or not, because we're going to try and establish: is there is there a blood flow impairment that's causing these symptoms? Is there a physiologic reason why you're still symptomatic? And if there is, let's get you going because exercise done in a sub-symptom threshold manner will be able to uh, rehab those mechanisms and actually improve your outcomes. And a lot of the evidence has shown this particularly with those persistent symptoms. Now this is getting earlier and earlier and earlier and I think we're getting to a point where we're going to realize that rest at all is potentially detrimental. We found that, uh, so Dr. Thomas uh, in 2015 published a study looking at patients who were put on cognitive rest and patients who were put on cognitive rest only for a couple of days. So the one group was on for at least five days, the other one was only on for two days. They found the group that had the less rest did better. Now this is a similar study to that. This was done here at the University of Toronto by Dr. Dave Lawrence. Uh, he's a sports doc. He's actually the new doctor for the Blue Jays. Um, I'm just going to open it up here so that I get all my facts straight for you. Um, the other co-authors were uh, Doug Richards, uh, Paul Comper, and uh, Mike Hutchison, um, all of whom are extremely well-known um, individuals in the concussion space, people who I really look up to for research. And this particular study Uh, They had 253 patients coming in to the sports medicine clinic at the University of Toronto uh, within 14 days. So that's what they defined as acute patients coming in within that 14-day timeline. And they would ask the patients, uh, if they had come in and it had been a little while, have you done any type of exercise? And what they defined as aerobic exercise was um, either like running on the treadmill, jogging, running outside, swimming. Um, cycling or stationary aerobic equipment such as um, elliptical or uh, cycle and they also then if those people that weren't exercising the sports medicine physician would actually prescribe exercise in a more acute stage than than, uh, you're typically used to and that actually had a protocol so it started with 15 minutes on the bike at a certain heart rate and it elevated every two sessions so if you were able to tolerate 15 minutes at 110 beats then you moved up to the next one which was 20 minutes at whatever so they progressed in that way. And they also asked them about all the other things that went into you know, concussion recovery. What types of things, prolong recovery, such as previous concussion history, um, uh, loss of consciousness potentially, um, and just all the variables, amnesia, et cetera, that could go in to result in a prolonged uh, concussion. And what they were looking at is what was the time for recovery and return to sports, and also return to school. And interestingly what they found was for each in this is a quote I'll just quote this right now for each successive day in delay to the initiation of aerobic exercise individuals had a less favorable recovery trajectory so the every day that they waited to exercise made them worse in the end also, there was a stronger protective effect for those people potentially going on to have persistent symptoms. Those who started exercise earlier had a protective effect, and they also had a faster return to school with exercise. And let's give you an example here. So here's what they say in the paper. Compared to initiating exercise even on day one following your injury, initiating exercise on day three had a 36% reduced probability of a faster return to sport. Initiating exercise on day 5 had a 59.5% reduced probability of returning to sport earlier. Starting on day 7, 73% reduced probability. Starting on day 14 resulted in an 88.9% reduced likelihood that you would be returned to sport faster. And so basically what they found through their survival analysis is that like day one, recovery was faster. Day two, recovery was less than day one. Day three was even worse. So it's almost like we're, this is some good evidence here um, that exercise initiated earlier actually may be beneficial, may have a protective effect. Getting into school, same thing goes for school. Initiating exercise on day three compared to day one resulted in a 45.9% reduced probability. Day five resulted in a 70% reduced probability. Day seven, 83% reduced probability. Day 14, 94% reduced likelihood that you would return to school uh, earlier than those that started exercise earlier. So now, just to discuss this, So obviously, a really cool study, kind of cutting edge, that we're actually looking at exercise now as an intervention to be done right away in the acute phase. Now, this also is starting to show us more evidence that the increased role for therapy and PTs, because we're the ones initiating these exercise protocols, right? So this is telling us even more and more and more that rehabilitation earlier and earlier and earlier is likely going to be the way to go. Based on this study being one study and having limitations, and the limitations are. The fact that athletes who came into the clinic who weren't prescribed exercise were self-selecting their exercise so we have no idea about the frequency we have no idea about the time or duration that they exercised for we have no idea about the intensity of exercise that they were doing so really i think there's still some limitations to this study but the idea of it allows us now to start looking at this earlier and earlier and earlier so i wouldn't run out right now and tell your patients to just start exercising day one But I think the idea of initiating exercise, maybe even in the first week, at least on their own, I get them up and going for walks day one, I get them walking the dog, doing household chores, mowing the lawn, things that aren't super, super strenuous, but at least gets the blood moving, start that day one. When it gets into more of the aerobic stuff, you know, I've now pushed it to about 10 days where I force people onto the treadmill. And those of you that are doing that type of work, start with day 10 and I bet you that your results will improve. Um, that's it for that particular
1: study. Doc, we have two questions. One, you sort of just answered, but the question is, how vigorous should the exercise be? Is breaking a sweat imperative? I think you just kind of answered that, but if there's anything else so, you want to add.
0: So I think the exercise, I think the best thing to do, I don't necessarily you know, like, I mean, people sweat at different ranges, right? You have people that come into the clinic and they're sweating buckets before they start. So it's um, it, sweat, I don't think is a good marker. What you really should be doing is is having somebody guide you through this because there's all sorts of different variables. Like we put heart rate monitors on people and we put them on the treadmill and there's a graded kind of protocol to follow. And that protocol has been validated, it's been verified. We know that it tests the mechanisms that we're actually looking for. And so that's my go-to. I don't tell patients to just go and exercise at this intensity, at this heart rate, and this thing. I actually test them. I find out what their threshold heart rate is, and then I dial back their exercise from that. So rather than looking at sweat as a as a marker, find a therapist that does this stuff, and they will help you guide guide through it.
1: Great. And second question: Why do they say going back to work too soon is bad, but then rest isn't beneficial either? What gives?
0: <laughs> that's a great. That's a that's an unreal question, and the answer is that um, I think that this stuff is new, and so for any any topic in medicine or healthcare in general, you're, you're looking at about 10 years before research, makes it into clinical practice. I think with the advent of social media and things like this where we can share new information immediately, I think that will hopefully speed up the process, but your general practitioner, your person who isn't specialized in concussion who hasn't received extra concussion education is going on the old kind of wives tales of, you know, rest, 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 don't do anything, don't go back to work too soon, don't do anything. And we found from other conditions and we're just applying this now to concussion, but we found that things like whiplash Whiplash, we used to put people on rest, we used to put people in cervical collars, we used to tell them to avoid work. And then we found that actually letting, taking the collar off, letting them keep moving allows the inflammation to get pumped out, it allows them to get back to work sooner, and actually promoting them to get back into that cognitive activity improves outcomes. So now we're starting to look at this with concussion and say, we've been telling people to rest for the past 20 years with a concussion. And we really don't have any good, strong evidence to show that rest is beneficial in any way. And we actually have evidence now emerging saying that limited rest or cutting down the amount of time you miss from school or work is actually more beneficial. So for me and my patients, I maybe give them a day or two off, and then I'm pushing them back into whatever they can do. Whether it's starting to work from home, answering emails, doing phone calls, at least you can kind of set, if you can set your own schedule and time and take breaks as needed, do that. But really what you want to do is be pushing more and more and more into it, um, you know, within, within reason. So now we're actually advancing this. We're pushing people a little bit more and more. So although people tell you that returning to work is bad, you're just, I think, talking to the, to the wrong people. Um, I think evidence now is, is, is slowly emerging that... You know, less and less and less of this rest phase is going to be where, the, where this ultimately goes. I think earlier and earlier activity initiation, whether it be cognitive or physical, um, seems to be where the trend is heading. And I think we just need more to prove that out. But um, again, it just takes long for this stuff to get into practice.
1: Uh, another question then, should returning to work be, be gradual then?
0: Yeah, of course. Everything should be gradual. There's a return, there's return to play protocols. Right? And then there's return-to-learn protocols now. We don't necessarily have a good return-to-work protocol as much as we do a return-to-learn protocol. But we can easily use the return-to-learn protocol. And so generally what that is is the first kind of 24 hours, yeah, take a day off work if you need to. Right, Take two days off work if you need to. Then I think by day two, the question is what can you do? And really what you're looking for is an exacerbation of symptoms, right? The fact that you're sitting at home with a headache, well, you can go to work with a headache, right? If the headache's getting worse when you're at work, well, that's a different story. Now you've got to dial it back a bit. So you're looking for when do symptoms get worse? Do they get worse? That's my guideline. Now, in terms of um, the, the next steps after that, like I said, start work at home. Initiating cognitive activity at home, step two. And each of these have to be separated by at least 24 hours. Right? Can you answer emails at home? Can you talk on the phone at home? Can you do any type of work from home? Do, a, do um, projects, whatever else you need to be done. Work at your own pace. Stage three. Once you're feeling good doing that, you can tolerate a good hour two hours of sitting there at home doing work. Then go to stage three, which is half day of work actually at the office. Go in, do that half day of work. Now I will say as a caveat to this, physical jobs are different because I actually, if somebody a construction worker or something that's a little more physically demanding, I'll treat them almost like an athlete where I'll actually put them on the treadmill test before I allow them to return to their physical job. Firefighting, police, that type of stuff. Because you don't want to get an exacerbation of symptoms running into a burning building. right? If your vision goes blurry, if you get ahead, of it, like, that could be bad. So there's differences there. But if you're an office worker, that type of thing... Step three is the half days, and then step four, finally, is a full return to work, um, taking frequent breaks as needed, but just pushing forward, right? If you don't lo- use it, you lose it. I think that's a good rule to live by, so you have to keep cognitive activity going within, uh, within uh, your brain. What do you guys
1: want? We have another, we have a couple more questions here. (laughs) As long as you're going to keep going, then yeah, I think uh, the questions are flowing in. So for employers that don't understand or have compassion for those who are injured as such with concussion, how do uh, patients get around this or what can you do to kind of...
0: I mean, I think that that's, that's a tricky situation because we deal with this stuff all the time, right? And I think that a lot of the, even the return to work, like insurance providers aren't really conducive to where the research is going. They're very out of date um, when you look at a lot of them. And so um, employers often um, aren't the best at providing these accommodations and some jobs are tough too. Like, I mean, like let's take firefighting for example, right? Like, you're either able to go or you're not able to go. And I think that's that's where it gets tough with some occupations. Um, I think that office workers and things like that where your job um, can be done at home, especially with the technology and stuff we have, provided that your um, the, the networks and computers and stuff you have are, are web accessible. Um, you know that's something that we deal with all the time with our patients, and I think what you really need you need to find a good um, a good doctor or a good therapist that kind of understands what you're going through and is able to convey kind of what you need in in, in a letter. Most employers, when they get a letter from a healthcare provider saying this is what this person is going to do, they almost have to abide by that. Right? Because if they're to go against that, I think it puts them in a bit of a liability situation. And so I think, again, relying on your resources, finding a good provider that understands the appropriate kind of stages of getting somebody back to work and various accommodations that need to be made, right? Like maybe, maybe it's a screen thing. Maybe it's a, you know, a cognitive thing. Maybe it's I um, I don't know. And, and I think that would be the answer to that one.
1: ERS physical therapy. We will answer your question, but just shoot us a DM with the question. We'll answer it there because I think it's going to be a little bit uh, longer than expected. So just shoot us a DM, and uh, we'll give you a good answer for that. That's it. All for right, questions.
0: Guys. Yeah. Thanks for the questions coming in. Uh, keep them coming. And uh, again, if uh, if you missed it, you can see this video on YouTube, and uh, or you can listen to it on your drive to work on SoundCloud or iTunes. Uh, and it is the Complete
1: Concussion Management Podcast. Ask a Concussion Doc. Episode 6, wrapping up.